Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're never going to get to the passage, but that's where you can look. Let's say for a moment that you are an elder. And being an elder, you have lots of responsibilities and you're kind of pulled this way and that from just a multitude of things. There's always more things to do than you have time to do. And there's never a day when you think to yourself, I have done all the ministry that's available. You just know that there's more to do than any person or persons could possibly do. As a matter of fact, the more people there are to do ministry, the more ministry needs to be done. And you know in your heart that your task as an elder is to feed the flock and to protect the flock from false teaching, to pray and to model godly priorities and excellent behavior. And you know the scriptures put the highest priority on teaching and preaching God's word. You recall the commands to take pains with and be absorbed in the word. You are reminded that you are to be constantly nourished up on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. You know that you are to give your attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. These things you know for certain. The Scriptures make them clear. Yet your experience is often different than what you see in the Bible. The Bible makes it so clear what you're to be doing, yet if you look back in your life, you see that maybe you aren't doing those things and those things aren't the priority and the mere fact that you don't spend time on them like they are your priority reveals that maybe other things are taking priority. The parking lot needs attention. You know, the church needs to buy a new copier. And which one to get? I mean, there's digital ones and other kinds that are the old-fashioned type, but they're more expensive, some that collate, some with staplers. Which one do you get? The church needs one. They need upgrading the sound system. A railing somewhere doesn't need code. The children's building needs retrofitted for earthquake reasons. And then there's the weekly offering. That needs to be counted. And then there's the benevolent fund and helping people in need. Someone needs to keep track of those in church who are needy and make sure their needs get met. Someone needs to make sure that visitors know where to go, that they are greeted, that they're given the correct information. And all of these things and many, many more things are good. And they're all important. And they all need attention. And you're the elder. And you need to make sure that those needs are being met. And as you sit back at your desk trying to devote yourself to prayer and the study of God's Word, all of these pressing needs keep pouring down on you. And you can kind of make you a little anxious. They all cry out to you and they say, what are you doing studying your Bible? What are you doing praying? You need to get out there and do some ministry as if prayer and study of God's word was not ministry. And Satan, yes, Satan, chimes in, listen, your people need you. Your sheep, those responsible 
that you're responsible for. They need you. How can you sit there praying and studying and doing nothing when your people are in need? Leave your books. Leave your pietistic rituals. And get out there and do some real good. Help some people. Do some real ministry. Be a shepherd. So you quit studying. And you go to do ministry to meet some urgent needs and day after day and week after week this happens and soon you begin to grow weak and your study times are forced and desperate and your prayer life is relegated to shooting up little prayer arrows in times of desperation and you are ministering to a lot of people though and the church is being blessed or is it? Can you disobey God and bless the church? Can you forsake what God calls you to do as your highest priority and bless the church? Does God intend for prayer and the ministry of the word to fit into the cracks of your ministry instead of purposefully receiving huge blocks of your time? Do physical needs take precedence over Communion with God in prayer and saturation of the Word of God because you are an elder. So what is an elder, a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer to do? He can't just neglect all these important things. So what's the solution? Well, you appoint some qualified deacons. That's the solution. You look into the Word of God, and the Word of God says, get some deacons so that you can do what you're supposed to do, and they can do what they're supposed to do. Then you think to yourself, but we don't have any deacons. We only have elders. So what should we do? Get some deacons, like the Word of God says. I have marveled at some of the marathon elder meetings that I've gone to since being here. And a lot of times I sit back and I think and consider of how much deacon work the elders are doing and how much elder work they can't do because they're doing so much deacon work. I think of how many things are pulling the elders of this church away from prayer and the ministry of the word and the spiritual fitness of the sheep because of these very many important and necessary ministries that need to be done. Who, if the church had deacons, could delegate those ministries to so that the elders could be excellent in what they're supposed to do. Every church needs qualified deacons. It's in the Word of God. We're told to have them. They're told to be qualified. They are trustworthy saints who can meet the needs of others and relieve the elders so they can do what they're supposed to do. And this morning, as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we come to the single greatest text in the Bible on deacons. It just happens to flow from where we've been. We've learned that overseers, elders, shepherds, bishops, pastors are all synonyms of the same office. We have seen in the 
book of 1 Timothy how worship and the priority of worship in the correct way by men of God and by women acting according to their roles gives God the most glory. We've seen that and that's been pretty clear. We've seen that the elders of the church hold the highest position they have the most responsibility and they are responsible for the sheep, for their care, for their protection, for their training and equipping so they can do the work of the ministry. And as we have learned, the elders are required to have a very high moral standard. They, are, they must meet certain criteria and we've looked at those criteria in the last several weeks. And everything an elder must be morally is everything the church must be morally. You know, if we've been talking about elders, we aren't just talking about elders, although that's the subject. Elders are to be what they are to be so you can be what you have to be. They are to be models of what you are to be. And so even though the text addresses elders specifically... All of it applies to you as well, because you are to have those same moral qualifications, those same moral character traits in your life. Now, as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, Paul addresses the second office of the church, the office of deacon. A deacon. Deacons, just like elders, are required to have very high moral qualifications. The question is, what is a deacon? What do deacons do? What is the difference between an elder and a deacon? What are the responsibilities of deacons? Can women be deacons? If so, what is their function? How do deacons function under the oversight of the elders? Why do some churches only have elders and no deacons? And why do some churches have deacons and no elders? And these are good questions. And we're going to try and answer these. I have this ongoing kind of little kidding discussion with one of my friends who is a pastor of a, the, a church in the local area here. And uh, he has a church and uh, he has all deacons with no elders. And so every time we get together, I ask him, I say, hey, you got any elders yet? And he kind of laughs says, no, but we're working on it. He says, do you have any deacons? I said, no, but we're working on it. I know we have people here at Calvary that are functioning as deacons, but because they are not examined, because they are not publicly recognized, they aren't really deacons in a biblical sense. Deacons, like elders, have a standard they must live up to, and hopefully this year we'll be able to get some deacons so that the elders can do more eldering. And then we can have some faithful servants to delegate certain tasks to. So if you have your Bible, follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13. through 13. Paul writes this, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons if 
they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now what's interesting is Paul, in verse 8, begins to address these qualifications of deacon. He does that through verse 10. Then, er, then in verse 11, he says, women, likewise. Now, we, we aren't going to get into whether these are women in general or wives of deacons, but he addresses women who serve in that capacity. Then he switches back to male deacons, gives some more qualifications. Now, what we have read, now this is very interesting, what we have read is the only text in the New Testament that specifically addresses deacon qualifications. As a matter of fact, this text and only one other text actually mention the office of deacon. The other text is Philippians 1.1, where Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And it's clear from Philippians 1.1 that Paul just nonchalantly just says, Oh, you know, to you people at Philippi, overseers and deacons, just real matter of fact, like, oh, we know every church has deacons. Every church has overseers. It's just something that happened. That book was written about 61 A.D. And he doesn't tell us anything except that there were people there holding the office of deacon. So, we have these two texts that mention deacons specifically, and that's all. There's a problem, though. Because when you look at those texts, they don't tell us specifically what deacons are to do. And you want to get some deacons, you want to have them do something, what do you have them do? That is a problem. And so this morning I want to kind of look at some text, one in specific, which helps us understand a little bit about what deacons are supposed to do or things related to what deacons are supposed to do. And that text is Acts chapter 6. So turn to Acts chapter 6. And uh, we're going to look at a passage which does not mention deacons specifically, but which I believe relates to deacons, and you'll see why. Now, the church in Acts 6 is very new. And you could hardly expect the office of deacon to even be mentioned here. The church is days old, and uh, it's brand new. And so things are happening, transitions are being made, but we can't expect to find all the terminology used about the church here because here it's just getting started. Now, you need to understand a little bit about the historical background here. The book of Acts is a book of transitions between Judaism and Christianity, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, you remember what happened... When um, 
the day of Pentecost came. Pentecost was what was called a pilgrim feast. It was um, one of those feasts where Jews from all around the Mediterranean basin would come and they would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate the feast of harvest. That's what Pentecost was. Pentecost happened 50 days after the Passover. So 50 days after the Passover, people would begin to converge upon Jerusalem. People from all over the place. And they would come in one of these pilgrim feasts, just pack out Jerusalem, worship God, and then go home. Well, that was like an ideal time to start the church. So God through the apostles and just happened to have Jesus die at the right time and just happened to get the apostles straightened out. And then at Pentecost is when Peter begins to preach and thousands come to the Lord. Thousands of them. Thousands of Jews come to repentance. Now you can see how strategic this would be in the plan of God to have all these people from all over the Mediterranean basin coming at one spot. You preach the gospel to them. Many are saved. And then what do they do? They go home as Christians spreading the gospel. I mean, you could hardly pick a more strategic thing to start the church. But that is exactly what happened. Now, these people who were coming on this pilgrim feast, remember, they they would come and they would expect to stay a certain time and then return back home. They would bring their provisions and their monies or whatever they needed to survive there in Jerusalem for that certain amount of time before they headed back. Now, the problem is, is this Christianity thing happens. The church is born. People are preaching. Miracles are being formed. Thousands are coming to repentance. And they want to know about their Messiah. They want to know what to do. They want to know what's different about the way. And so they're asking questions and they don't want to go home. They want to hang around. I mean, things are happening in Jerusalem. And so they do. They're hanging around. Well, what happens is, is now all these people start running out of provisions and they start getting hungry. I mean, they don't even live there. They're, they're, they're just kind of dwelling there temporarily before they go back home. And now there's just massive amounts of need. People are running out of food and people need taken care of. And the reason they're there is to learn from the apostles, to get fed, to get equipped, to find out as much as they can before they go back to their homeland, wherever that might be. Now, we don't know how long it was before the events of Acts 6 took place, but it was days later, and thousands and thousands have come to repentance, and there's this huge abundance of physical needs. And so this is what Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says. Look there. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, this is comforting because the church is brand new and they already have problems. And so, you know, for those who have to deal with problems in the church, this is comforting. And you can see what the problem is here. There's two kinds of Jews here. There's the Hellenistic Jews or the Greek-speaking Jews, probably from a more Greek culture, who probably didn't know the native dialect of Hebrew or Aramaic. And they had come from all over the place 
probably at Pentecost. And they were there, and those widows were being overlooked because the Hebrew Jews, the locals, probably from the Palestine area, they were kind of maybe playing a little favorites because, you know, these were the hometown widows and you are the foreign widows. And so these widows, these Hellenistic Jewish widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving. Now, verse 2 continues. Look there. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, the apostles' response is very interesting. They have this very urgent and important need, but their response probably seems a little surprising to some. The apostles, who were the first elders of the church, and we know this from texts like 1 Peter 5.1 and 2 and 3 John 1, say it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And people, this is a huge statement. The Bible puts a very high priority on helping the needy, on helping widows. James says that true and undefiled religion is to help widows and orphans in their distress. It is like the definition of what it means to be a Christian. Those things cannot be neglected. The church must minister to the needy. Those needy believers from within the body who need taken care of for whatever reason. And in the early church, these Jewish widows who became believers in Jesus Christ were often neglected and they were actually outcast because maybe they had Jewish relatives and as soon as they come to faith in Christ, it's like, get out of my house, you traitor, you treason. I don't even know you. I disown you. And soon, all of a sudden, they become outcasts. And so it was incumbent upon the church to take care of these Jewish widows from wherever. Yet as high as a priority as it was to make sure those widows were taken care of, the text here tells us it's not as high a priority as ministering God's word to God's people. It was not a need that was so great that those gifted and called to preach should stop teaching and preaching in order to serve tables. Now, preaching and teaching is the highest and most important ministry of the church, and this is why. All other ministries flow from it. All worship flows from it. Everything we do is to be examined carefully by the Scriptures and modeled after the Scriptures. It is not right or good, Peter says, that those called and gifted to preach and teach, the elders, should stop their ministry in order to serve tables. That is not right. Now, the term serve tables has one of two meanings. It's hard to say what it means in this context. In, in other places that it occurs... It talks about the tables of the money changers. Do you remember what happened with Jesus? He went into the temple and he did what? He turned over the, temp, the tables of the money changers. And what would happen is they'd uh, go down to Costco and buy one of those long tables, set them up, and they'd spread out all their currency on them. It was kind of their portable bank. And then they would sit there and they would exchange money. That was kind of their banking system. 
They didn't have big vaults and things. They kind of had portable banks, tables that they would set up and they could sit down and they could exchange money with people. It either is referring to that or it's talking about the distribution of food which was purchased with money. Very similar, both are almost identical. One is just the dealing with money to do those things, or one, whether it's just doing the end product, I don't know. But what is obvious here is that all these people were coming to the Lord, and there were so many needs, and so much money was being given to the church, that the apostles were getting burdened. In Acts chapter 2, if you turn back there, this is what you read. 2 verse 44 says, And all those who had believed were together and all and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. All these people who are all from all over the place who are camping out now to learn more about Christianity had huge needs. And so people were just selling their stuff. I mean, God's Spirit was moving upon them, and they just, in generosity, out of just love for God because of sending the Messiah and just devotion to these other fellow believers who had recently come to repentance, they're just selling their material possessions and just giving it to the apostles. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, you read this. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him uh, was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now the question is, who, ha- who is responsible to deal with all this money? Well, it was the apostles. If the tables refers to the money tables, or whether it refers to the uh, the things purchased and then the preparing of food and then the serving of food to specific people, whatever the case is, that was pulling the apostles away from their ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word, teaching, preaching, discipleship, and things like that. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, it's not good. And he was not saying it was not good to help the poor, to serve tables, but that it was not good that those called to teach the word and minister to the word, the overseers of the church, should stop doing what they were called to do in order to serve the tables. If you were having open heart surgery, and you know they got your chest cranked open, maybe doing a bypass or something, how would you like it if the surgeon just stopped to answer the phone in the lobby And every time the phone rang, he just said, oh, wait a second, popped off his gloves, ran out there, answered the phone, hello, front desk. And said, okay, I got to go back, scrub up, you know, while you're there open, put on some new gloves and start again. That would not be good. It's like, hey, pal, get back here. Get me sewn up. Get my heart functioning. Well, the ministry of the Word of God in all of its aspect and meditating on it and studying it and preaching it and teaching it and discipling other people how to do that is the important thing. And even though these other ministries are important, they should never usurp the ministry of the Word. Because when the ministry of the Word is set aside for anything else, the church dies a slow, painful death. 
If the word isn't proclaimed, people don't come to salvation. They don't grow in sanctification. The church doesn't know how to do ministry. They don't know how to worship in truth. Holiness decreases and soon the church becomes anemic and starts buying into all sorts of gimmicks. They get off the path and fall off the cliff of error. So the scriptures are kind of the lifeblood of the church. You cut off the lifeblood, the church dies. You restrict the lifeblood, the church becomes sickly. So it's very important that the Word of God keeps going forth, that everybody is constantly reminded by all the things in the Word of God, that it's constantly being ministered to the saints. And Peter understood this, and so this is what he said in Acts 6, verses 3 and 4. Now he's got this solution to this problem. So he says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now notice that the ministry to the needy and the poor was very, very important. He's not saying, oh, this is an insignificant, people are insignificant, their personal needs are insignificant, I mean, just give it up. No. It's so important that he just didn't say, well, let's just get some warm bodies in there. He says, let's get some godly people, some people who are full of the Holy Spirit, some people who are very wise, very godly, very responsible. And let's take these people and delegate to them these very important ministries so we can do the ministry that we have been called to do. And then Peter finishes up in verses 5 and 6 with this. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now these seven men were given the responsibility in the early church to make sure the needy were cared for. That was their responsibility. And these, although they are not called deacons specifically, are kind of like the first prototype deacons. And they may have been um, deacons indeed, but yet the official title of deacon was not yet formed. We don't know. But whatever the case is, we can learn some things from this text about deacons. First, we we know this. Only two of these seven men are ever mentioned anywhere else. And this is what makes me think that they probably weren't deacons, like the official deacon, because they were more than that. At least two of them were. Stephen and Philip are mentioned elsewhere. And when you look at Stephen and Philip, they were both evangelists, both preachers, and both workers of miracles. If you turn over to Acts chapter 8, we can look at Philip. Acts 8, verses 5 and 6. We read this. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming or preaching Christ to them. The the crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. If you look down at verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Philip was this major preacher. 
I mean, he was this major evangelist. Now, if you go down to Acts chapter 8, verse 26, he's told the witness to this Ethiopian eunuch. And so he does, and he leads the guy to the Lord, and then he baptizes him. And then in verse 39 of Acts 8, God kind of uh, beams him to a whole other spot, to Ashdod, or Azotus, as it was called then, where he kept preaching until he worked his way to Caesarea. Now, you don't hear anything about him again until Acts 21, verse 8. And in Acts 21, verse 8, Paul just kind of mentions Philip. We know he was called to witness to this guy, and then he was transported over to this place, and then he traveled to this other place. And then this is what we read in Acts 21.8. On the next day, this is Paul speaking, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. It seems that Philip's whole term there in the early church, maybe when all these widows went back to where they were going, the need wasn't as great, but no doubt Philip wasn't uh, one of these seven servers of the church of Jerusalem for very long because he's gone. It seems like he's based in Caesarea and he has this reputation now as Philip the Evangelist. Now Stephen's ministry was even shorter lived, if you know his story. He became the first martyr, stoned to death by those Jews who refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He preached this incredible sermon. He called the Jews to repentance. They they were so struck by what he said and the power of the word of God that they put their hands over their ears and gnashed their teeth and they just ran on him in one accord and stoned him to death. So his deacon days were over if he was a deacon. Now, to make a dogmatic statement that the seven selected in Acts were the first deacons, I think, is going beyond what the text says. But what's interesting is, is we can learn some things here. We can learn here that being able to teach would not exclude someone from being a deacon, most likely. I mean, just because you're a deacon, it doesn't mean you can't teach. But when you look at the qualifications of deacon, being able to teach isn't there which is very glaring because it is in the qualifications of elders, both in Titus and Timothy. But what Acts 6 does teach us is that those entrusted to the ministry of God's Word and preaching and teaching need relief from faithful, godly people who can serve other people. And that people is what a deacon is. We also learn from Acts 6 that taking care of the poor is so important that people with godly character, very high godly character, must be first screened, then tested, and then put into action. It's very likely that the seven provided kind of a prototype pattern which later became what deacons were so the elders could be freed up to preach and teach and pray. So, that's pretty much it. That, that's it. Now, we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then we ask to ask ourselves some questions. So what is a deacon? Well, we already noted some things from Acts 6, but those things cannot be asserted with any sort of dogmatism because they aren't called deacons there. Now, the, 
the, the verb form of the word deacon and the noun form appear there, serving and to serve. But there's this glaring omission in 1 Timothy. And that is, the text gives us all these qualifications, but it doesn't ever say what they're supposed to do. Those holding the office of deacon should do this ministry or that ministry is never stated. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, and this is what I asked myself this week and the week before, why appoint qualified deacons if we don't know what they're supposed to do? If the Bible doesn't say deacons do this and deacons do that, then, then what do we tell them to do? Some of you may be asked to be deacons. What are you going to be signing up for? If you don't know what you're supposed to do, well, that's what we have to get at. What are they supposed to do? Before we look at the qualifications, I want to look at what they're supposed to do so then we can understand why they're supposed to be qualified. So, if the major text which addresses deacons doesn't say what they are supposed to do, how can we find out? And the answer is this. It's in the word deacon, the word deacon itself. The word deacon means one who serves or ministers. When I was going by the, the prayer room the other day and the, uh, the music minds were in there talking and uh, I was just kind of walking by. I said, hey, you got a good song on deacons? And they said, no, you got any ideas? And I said, make me a servant. And so it showed up. I was just kidding. But that was good. That's what deacons are all about. Serving. Now the word diakonos is real similar to the word doulos. And the word doulos is translated servant or slave. And it's not to be confused. According to Vine's Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words, doulos or slave or servant, it appears over and over again, emphasizes a person's relationship, the servant's relationship to the master. Deacon or diakonos or diakonia or dinakoneo relates to a person's relationship to those they serve, to the work of service. That is the little nuance of difference. A deacon is one who serves others out of love for God. Now, the noun form of the word is used in many ways. And to give you an example, Jesus said, Whoever wishes to become great among you, let him become your diakonos, your servant. Not doulos, but diakonos, one who goes to minister to other people. That is the word. And Jesus called those who served the king in the parable of the wedding feast, Diakonos, servants, and the servants. And as you look through the many texts of the New Testament, you begin to see that this word describes those who do things for other people, who have this passion to do things for other people. That's what a deacon is. Now we know, just because they have qualifications, we're all called to serve, aren't we? We're all called to serve each other, to love each other, to serve one another. That is for every believer, But there are certain believers amongst those believers who are given specific tasks that have high responsibility that must meet moral qualifications so that they can serve under the oversight of the elders and meet people's needs. 
So we know from the use of the noun and the verb that the word meaning deacon or translated deacon in the New Testament is talking about a person who serves others. Serves others. That's their primary role and function. Now the biggest problem in discovering what a deacon is is this. We're out of time. And so all of this is introduction to the sermon I was going to preach today. And so next week, when we come back, Lord willing, we're going to talk a little bit more about what deacons are and try and define that a little clearer as opposed to elders. They aren't the same as elders. And then we're going to look at some of the qualifications of deacons and hopefully we'll understand why God calls the church to have deacons and how they can benefit our body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we could begin to unravel this whole concept of deacons. Father, we do want to have deacons. And Father, right now I pray that you would begin to move in people's hearts. People who just have a passion to serve others, to meet their needs, to help the needy, to help the widows, to help the downcast and and distraught. Father, that you would raise up people even now in our midst, who would have a desire to serve you. Maybe they don't have great gifts of teaching, but Father, they have great gifts of compassion and mercy. Father, I just pray that those people would be made known to us. And Father, that maybe this fall, as we uh, nominate elders, that we might get some deacons to help the elders do what they're supposed to do so that the church might be blessed as we submit to your word. Father, we again, we thank you for moms today and pray that as we leave here, those moms who are here and those moms who are not here that we love would have a great day. Father, we praise you and thank you and may you receive all the glory for what you have done for us. Amen. I think you're dismissed. You are dismissed. Have a great day.